Good morning, church. <clears throat> I wanted to start off by just telling you a story about something that happened to me in this last year. I develop a friend here on island. His name is Peter. And um, <clears throat> we came together because we were working together on the Heartbeat Bill. He's an uh, author uh, of the bill. And we became friends through that effort. And he invited me to come to his uh, birthday and there was a dinner, and a lot of people were there. I went to the, the birthday, my wife and I. And at the birthday, this lady st stood up and gave a toast to him and said a lot of good things about him and their relationship. And um, one of the things I noticed was they had forged the relationship a lot through an effort that they did together. <clears throat> and um, then later, I was invited to a another dinner, and they were there. And I got to talk to this lady who was like a best friend. And I said to her, we were talking, and, and she said to me, how do you know Peter? And I said, well, you know, we kind of got to know each other through doing the heartbeat bill together. And then she said, oh, well, I am on the total opposite end of that. I, she opposes that bill. And then I thought, uh-oh, you know, this is like a, you know, where you drop something that creates tension at like a social dinner, you know, I think I, I stepped in it, you know, and, uh, but then what happened was I, 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 something happened that amazed me because I saw them, he leaned over, they hugged and it was like, they're like best friends, even though they're on total opposite ends of a very controversial issue. And the thing that bonded them was that they had they had come together on this project that they worked in for, for years through a lot of uh, scrutiny and trial and error and, and hardship, and they were good friends through that. Now, I say that because today's message is going to really try to draw you in on unity and what brings us together that unifies us. Because the church, more and more, that lives in modern-day culture is very divided especially on issues like the very issue I bring up uh, about this, these two best friends is an issue that divides people. Political things divide us. And what I want to show you is this, because we just went through the book of Daniel, and I want to show you a, a passage where God prepared the people going into Babylon in a way that they were supposed to be unified as a people. Now, we spent a year we looked at the life of Daniel. He was almost 80. He wrote that book. We learned so much. But the passage I'm going to give you today, it's a, it's a prequel. Because I grew up in the 80s, and in the 80s it was like there, a great movie would come out, and you would, you'd be like, are they going to make a sequel for that? You know, We live in the era of prequels. They make a good movie now, and they go, are they going to make the prequel? You know, This passage is, is a prequel passage. This is like it happens as they go, before they go in, it's preparation. And I want you to look at that with me because there's some points out of this passage that the church can really learn from. And this passage is in Jeremiah 29. Let me read it to you. Starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Father, I just pray as we look at this passage that you would Speak to the hearts of those who are sitting here today. What do you want us to learn from the prophet Jeremiah? We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen. Now, my first point is that Jeremiah is going to unite the people of God in his word. You see, they were in, ex they were in their land and they were uprooted and went into Babylon in, in exile. And so there, what's happening in this prequel little story is as they were going in, they were trying to sort some things out as a people. And there were some guys that said, we're prophets, and they were standing up and they were giving 
This is God's word to the people. And this is what they said. Don't live in the city of Babylon. If you go and live in the city of Babylon, the Babylonians are going to try to reshape you into Babylonians. You will lose your spiritual identity. So live outside the city. Create suburbs that are very Jewish, and that, that way you will keep your spiritual identity. And Jeremiah stood up. He said, I got a different word from the Lord. In fact, about those prophets, he said this, they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. And he stands up and he's got a word for them. In fact, in verse 4, the very first thing that is said is, thus says the Lord. And so my first point is, is going to be there's authority in God's word. Who's the authority here? Jeremiah? Is it these other, other guys standing up saying stuff? Who should we listen to? Now, this is important because as they go into Babylon, they're going to have a lot of that. They're going to have many voices in that culture. And, and those voices are going to say, live like this. This is what your, your boundaries should be. These are the values. This is the morality we live by here. And they got to be able to discern and know what is true, what has authority. And so one of the things we learn as they go into this, this pluralistic culture is that God's people need to discern what is really his word. Jeremiah said, thus saith the Lord. That is God's word. Now, when you get to the New Testament, you have Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is the word. It's not just what's coming out of his mouth. It's his whole being. He's the word in the flesh. That's how John describes him. He's the word. Paul speaks in a like manner of Jeremiah. He even uh, uh, talks about his teachings being authoritative. And each one of them had an authority. And why is that important? Because like I said, there's always another gospel out there. In this case, there's, two, there's Jeremiah the prophet who's got the real authentic word that has authority. And there are these, some of these other guys that Jeremiah says, they are lying to you. And we can learn from this. Look what it says in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is saying that in the future there's going to be people who come in my name. There's going to be people who say they are the Messiah. They're going to be deceivers. They're going to be tricking you. Don't fall for it. Later, Paul, in one of his epistles, says, even if an angel comes to you and says, here is a gospel word, and it's different than this word, don't listen. And there's a point through Scripture that you see, Old Testament to New Testament, there's always another gospel out there. There's always another proclaimed truth that's going to stand against the real thing. And that's why this is important. In fact, if we, if we could even look at the life of Daniel, since we studied him. Do you remember the chapter where Daniel was praying and he's waiting on the answer and it was three weeks and finally the, the angel showed up to give him the answer to his prayer and it was like, how, why did it take you so long to get here? Do you remember his answer? Because when I left heaven, on my way from heaven to you to bring you the answer, I was withstood by a demon. We fought in the sky. I would have lost if it were not for Michael the archangel who was sent to help me. And in that passage, the thing that we were pointing to is this battle for truth, battle for the words of God. There is an information war that is being raged. Even today, fake news, what's really real? The battle for what is true is a battleground that Christians have to walk on. And here, Jeremiah is preparing them, thus saith the Lord. So one of the things we see in this is there's authority in God's word and then also clarity, clarity. So we know exactly what truth is and what he is going to say to them is those guys are liars. 
Don't live in the suburb, the bubble. You've got to go and live in Babylon, but keep your spiritual identity. And this is echoed in Christ in the New Testament, who says, be in the world, but not of it. That we are called to be in the world, but, but to know God's Word, we need to know authority, and it gives us clarity so that we can be directed by His Word. So God's Word gives us direction. And you see, as they went into Babylon, and they're going to live in Babylon, like Jeremiah says, he's the true prophet, he's given clarity on this issue, we're going to go there, then what about losing your spiritual identity? One of the things that happens in Babylon, they adapt, because they're used to worshiping out of the Old Testament with their whole temple system. They, they um, identify with the whole temple sacrificial system as their worship, and they don't have it. Not only do they not have it physically in Babylon, but it's been broken down and destroyed in the homeland. And so how do they do that? And one of the things that you see in their, their time period of Babylon is the rise of the, of the use of the synagogues. That synagogues are like, how can we co come together as a people to worship? And they begin to meet in like home-like structures. Some of them actual homes where they come together and then they become, this is, this is our house of worship. It's, this, it's a substitute for what we were used to having. But we come together and we can read God's word. And someone who really knows God's word can teach us something and we can worship together. And you know what that sounds like? The church. The church. And there's a way in which there's preparation. It's a foreshadow of what would happen in the New Testament in the book of Acts when the people of God, the church then, could not come. It couldn't be the, the, the temple then, then because now they're the church. And, and so we see God preparing them for the future. But in this moment, what I want to say is you've got be united in God's word. Jeremiah's got the true word. There's always a false word, a false gospel. This is the true word. You must know it. It gives you clarity and direction for how to live in Babylon. Now, the next thing I want to point out, because there's a lot of plurality of faiths, right, in Babylon. You see in chapter 3 uh, where they've built... Um, this statue, and there's, they're trying to force uh, Daniel's friends to bow down. And one of the things that's said in that chapter is, "All I want everyone to bow down. And he describes it this way. Every language, every culture, all the people, and there's this diversity. You see that, that, that Babylon had grabbed people and conquered them and brought them back, that in Babylon there was such a diversity of people and cultures and that sounds very similar today. The more diverse we grow, the more types of, of truths that we might hear. There is a plurality of truths jockeying for position and challenging to be held. So they must be united on God's word. Jeremiah is going to give them that and the clarity and now the direction. He's going to unite them in their mission. Because he goes on to say, those who sent into exile build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. And you're like, Pastor, what, what, what's going on here? The mission is to eat vegetables, to plant gardens, to have babies? Well, actually, you get the mission at the end. The mission is multiply there, and he's telling them how to multiply. And this is, this is how you break it down. Number one, make for yourself a life. You're going there. You need to have a livelihood. You're going to have to survive. You're going to have to find a way to make a living there. By, by saying build a home, plant gardens, he's talking about their livelihood and and having stability. This is not going to be a short-term thing. You're going to be there longer term, and you need to think about settling in and finding a way to build stability in your life so that you can multiply. Make for yourself a life, 
provide for yourself increase as a community through family. And we get this because he specifically says, do not decrease. Now, I'm going to make the point here that the emphasis is on growing, growing, multiplying. The opposite of, he says, don't shrink, don't decrease. It's possible that the people of God could not have children or intermarry with all these diversity of cultures in a way, and through the intermarriage, lose faith because you're bringing other faiths together and some of them lose out and some of them win over, that they could disappear as a people. No longer do they represent God as a people. They're so intermixed with their faith. And so the emphasis is, number one, multiply by family. Have kids. We also see, and this one isn't explicit in the verse, but it comes out of our study in Daniel, that they were to increase as a community through witness. What do you mean, pastor? Well, well, we just look at the life of Daniel. He landed. He was good at his job. And people around him liked him because he was good at his job. Because of his good spirit, the book of Daniel says, and he won favor. Now, sometimes there were antagonists that didn't like him moving up the food chain, right? And he had enemies that way. But you get this great peek into how witness can increase uh, presence in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar, this is a guy who had a, had a very uh, mean side to him. There are some stories I told that of just evil, how he slaughtered wholesale families. This was their leader that he served under. And then there's a point where this is what comes out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar speaking about Daniel's God. How great are his signs. How mighty his works, his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting. And so we see that because of Daniel's witness to him and how God used Daniel, we see the growth, the increase of, of, of the gospel of belief in God through just the witness. So... Their mission is make yourself a life. Settle in there. Have families. You got to settle in. Find an occupation. Build a house. Have kids. Have your kids marry. And they have kids. You increase. Make sure you don't decrease. Be a witness. And then lastly, I'm going to add this in because this comes out of the New Testament. Okay, in the New Testament, this is how we think of mission. We think of the great co-mission that comes out of Matthew 24. We increase as a community through evangelism. That directive was not specifically given to Daniel or the people by Jeremiah when they went in. Now, you can contrast that with Jonah. Jonah was told, go stand on the soapbox on the street corner and preach to the people. You better turn from your sin or judgment's coming from God. That's what he did. But, but, but Jeremiah didn't give that in his directive. They were not to stand up and they were not to preach like that in that same way that Jonah did. God had a different way with them. Live amongst them. Be a witness. See your families grow within their communities. That's how you grow. But when we get to Matthew 24, as a people of God, we're given an added commission to us, which is go therefore into all the world and make disciples of Christ. How? baptizing them, that means we bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ where they put their trust in Him. And then, how do you make a disciple? You don't stop there. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's a process now that they put their faith in Christ. You bring them into relationship and you're getting them into God's Word. I'm going to teach you all that I've been taught. And that's growth. God's community is supposed to grow. Both ways, because Paul affirms in the New Testament the place of family. Great passages of teaching on that. Children are a blessing unto the Lord, God's Word says. But, but today, we don't just try to grow through, through growing our families. We are to be evangelistic. And we see that in Acts. We see that um, the church grew. First time Peter preached, thousands came into the church. And then it, all through Acts, it's always growing. Never is it. Suddenly it's shrinking. It was always growing, even under persecution. Now, as it grew, 
you kind of see them adapt as well in the New Testament. Because in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, you see Paul make this remark. He says, I was with you when you were gathered together in the large group and when I went from you house to house in the smaller groups. In fact, some churches use uh, the term 2020 as a description of their small group ministry to emphasize we are supposed to gather together collectively as a large group, but then you're also supposed to be gathering together in smaller groups different from this time period. 2020. Acts 2020. Well, how else did they adapt? By the way, those little small group meetings, very similar to the synagogue style when they were in Babylon. Preparation for what they would have to do in the future. They couldn't gather together in the temple system in Acts. What do they do? On Saturday, all of the Jews are showing up to do the sacrificial system that they do. That's their religion. They can't gather then. You know what they did? They gathered on Sunday. It's empty on Sunday. Let's go there on Sunday in the big courtyard. We can gather together there. And you kind of see an adaptation where they actually switch their day of worship to Sunday. It adapted. But they're growing. That's the main point. Large group to house to house. So the mission is increase. Don't decrease. And as I've said, Old Testament, primarily family and witness. New Testament, Paul's affirmation of family, but evangelizing is a primary method now to increase. Now, I have a question. Why do we decrease? One of the sad things in the whole story of Daniel is towards the end. When as a people, finally their time is over, and they're going back to their homeland. And he's distraught because only 50,000 people have responded as a nation. That's it. Why? Because many of them had fallen in love with the opulent culture of Babylon and liked their lives. And they'd forgotten about their true identity and the witness that they were supposed to be. Why do we decrease? Why is it that churches today shrink when in Acts they're always growing? Have they lost their mission? Or maybe they don't have a vision? We've seen this recently in the last hundred years, the decline of the church. Every major mainline denomination has shrunk. In the pandemic, coming out of that, we've seen the loss of many people. We had a a teacher come from the States, set up here at our church, a pastor's conference. More than 60 pastors and church leaders came to it. One of the sessions this speaker did was on the pandemic. And I remember one thing he said, churches lost 20% of their constituency in the pandemic. What happened to them? That's the study. Some of them are still at home. They just haven't come back. They're watching online, maybe because they're afraid still of the pandemic. Some of them went to another church. They left your church and went to another church, which in the end isn't really gospel increase. It's just reshuffling the harvest, right? But sadly, there's a percentage of that that have never come back. They're gone from the church. And there's a real need for churches today to look at their vision as a church to accomplish the mission God has given them and to realize we should be growing because the gospel grows. Now, that leads me to the next point because we see they're united in God's word and he's uniting them in their mission. What is their mission? Increase. Well, what is the vision then? He's going to give them a vision. And it comes in the next verse, in verse 7. And you're going to go, what? That's the vision? Because in verse 7, he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You say, what kind of vision is that? That seems kind of weird. I mean, to me, a vision is like John F. Kennedy saying, we're going to the moon. 
And everybody goes, wow, this is like pray for your city. And, and you want it to do well. And so you have, to, you have to understand where he's taking them. The first thing you need to understand is the difference between mission and vision. Mission we got from God. And that is increase. That is make disciples of Christ. It should be the same for every church in the world. You don't get another mission. God gave you the mission. But your vision can be different from church to church. The vision is how do you accomplish the mission in your specific part of the world? Maybe I make disciples in Africa differently than I do in New York. You see that? It can look perhaps different. And it adapts to the context of where we are. So, under this point, I want you to notice something. Number one is this. You have been sent somewhere. Every singer, believer in Christ has got to understand you have a mission to make disciples and the vision is you've been sent somewhere. That's the first thing because he says to them, you've been sent to the city. This guy over here, this false prophet was saying, don't go there. No, no, I'm sending you there. I sent you to live in that city, to be in the world, but not of it, to be a witness for me. So guys like King Nebuchadnezzar can utter things that sound like they have faith in me. You've been sent somewhere. You thought you came here to pad your resume, to build something on that resume to make you look more appealing for a better job down the line. No. That's side stuff. That's the garnish, the, the potatoes. The meat is on that plate is he sent you here because you're part of the Great Commission. You go and you live in the city and you seek the welfare of the city. You have been sent somewhere. Okay? What do I do then? Seek the welfare. Means you exist for the welfare of the place you've been sent. I don't care if you're here a year, two years, six months, ten years. God sent you here to help Guam. To help whatever base you serve on, to help whatever school you teach at, to help whatever business you're at, you are here to help it do well. And there's a way in which this takes us out of ourselves because we are inherently selfish people and we seek to do what's best for ourselves in situations. And that's not Christ. If that was the attitude of Christ, he would have never left heaven and came down for you. But he says, I'm going to send you out and wherever you land, oh, by the way, you're going to go to Guam. And what, what do you do? You live in such a way that you bring about the welfare, the, not, not like, like welfare coming from the government. We're talking about that it does well. It fares well. It's doing great. That's what the word means. That's part of the vision of your mission. One of my college roommates, he lived next door to me. His name was Brooks Buser. He married a girl at the, at the school, Nina Brooks. And Nina Buser became famous amongst our friends group because they became missionaries. They left and they went to somewhere in Indonesia to a part of it where no one from the West had touched. And they knew about him. We know a place. And no one's been there. We're going to try to go. And you could get their newsletters and some, watch some of their stuff that when they had the opportunity to post about what they were doing. And they went there with the purpose of bringing the gospel to them. But do you know what they did? They built houses. And you know what else they did? They built a clinic. And you know what else they did? They spent a year clearing the jungle so they could build an airstrip so that planes could fly in and bring supplies to the clinic and better things for the whole village. There's a way in which their presence wasn't just about, hey, I got a name tag and I want to come into your house and sit on your couch and I got to, I got to uh, bring you to, to accept what it is I want to tell you about. No, no, get rid of the name tag. I'm here to live with you and we're going to build a better community. Whether or not you accept what it is I want to tell you, I still care about the well-being of this whole place and I'm going to be a part of making it better. Brooks and Nina Buser loved their neighbors as themselves. They gave up a lot of their life to bring the gospel to them. And I remember when, he, when 
I think it was his father who came back and was talking once, and there was this phrase that he said that forever etched itself in my heart. He said, one day I'm going to set before the feet of God the church of the Ituri people. They're there because I went. And I remember thinking, what am I going to set there? What will I have to lay down at the foot of my Savior? And you have to understand that's your mission. You don't have to go to the jungles of a people never touched. You can do it where it is where God has sent you. Now, part of this vision then is that you understand that in the word welfare, there is an interconnected relationship at the municipal level. See, municipality means that which is of the city, of, 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 of the town, of the village. Because you can't really care about it if living there really stinks. And you have a way that you could help it. But you don't. Because you don't really care. It's too much of an effort. I mean, imagine living together with people you're trying to reach, but there's poor food distribution. And people are hungry. Where trash is building up on the streets. And it's smelly and there's terrible education there and the schools are, buildings are bad and there's no clinic where people can go to to get medical needs. There's a, there's a part about being on the mission is having a vision for how can I make the city, the village, the island that God has sent me to better so that we can say it's great living here. The welfare of the city is part, has to be on the heart of the missionary. So, this aspect of culture building, it's built into the DNA of being a Christ follower. I don't have time to, to unpack this, but you realize in, in Genesis, you start in Genesis, in the beginning God created, and you got Adam in the garden, and there's the tree of life, and Adam sets to work. Adam takes what God has made and is reorienting creation. He's, he's recreating what, taking things God has made to make something. That in and of itself is a message. You are called to reorient, to build and create where God places you. But here's the meta narrative arc. Genesis, tree of life, garden, Adam's there. Revelation at the very end. We're in heaven. And you know what's at the center? The tree of life. And you know what's around it? Not a garden. It is a magnificent, glorious city. And there are streets of gold and there's rivers flowing through it and it's, there's culture and there's art and there's, it's fantastic. And there's a message that goes, we're not meant to stay in the garden-like stat status. We are to build something over time. Culture, that's where we end in the Bible. A magnificent city. And you know what? He has sent you to one. And he's calling you to live in it and to help make it a better place to live. And pray for the city. That's the next point. Daniel was a man of prayer, right? He prayed for his people. His heart weighed heavy on his people. He prayed for the city where they lived. There's turnover of leaders all the time. And, and he built a room that was just for prayer. Part of the mission and the vision is what kind of prayer do you have for Guam? Do you even pray for Guam? Do you pray for its leaders? And here's a truth time bomb, about to go off, truth bomb, because he ends it with this. He says, pray for the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And he wraps it up by saying, look, you can't do well if the city isn't well. If it's doing well, you're going to do well. That's part of it. That ties you to it. If living there really stinks, do something about it. And as you do something about it and you're making it better and you're serving the, the, the community at large, then you're going to do well. That's what he says. It's the flip-flop of I came to climb the corporate ladder to build my resume, 
to make a future for me. You are to be making a future for the city, for the island. And if you do that, your future looks good. You will do well. And it's also for a time. Because later he says, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So this is the part where, where Daniel was reading Jeremiah and he found that and he goes, Whoa, it's only going to be 70 years. Woo! And what that says is he has sent you somewhere, but it's not forever. You're not going to be there forever. I mean, eventually we all die, so that part's true, right? But you have to think in terms of I'm here for a time and make good use of my time. They had 70 years. 70 years to make an impact, to be a witness. Well, how much time do you have? Some of you are here for two years. Some of you are here longer, shorter. But you have a time. And fundamentally, Christ is coming back. Or you're going to die. We're going to die. One of those two things. It's inevitable you have a time limit. Make your time count so that one day you're standing there. You didn't know it. You died. Or you didn't know it. Jesus came back. And now we're before him. And you can say, I want to set before you. This is what I did with my time. Not the church of the Aeturi people, but something else. So, you need to live this way until time is up. And what I see Jeremiah doing is trying to unite the people. They're going to go into a land where they're going to, tr- they're going to try to be pulled apart. They're going to try to be join, join um, my vision of the city. They're going to follow this leader. They're, they're, going, to, they're going to try to, to become or made into... Babylonians. And he's uniting them. And he's reminding them, first of all, be united on what God's word says. Don't listen to it if it's not God's word. Those guys are lying. Then he says, be united in your mission. Your mission is to increase. You must increase. You must increase. Part of that vision for how you do it is go wherever it is and make it a great place to live. That's the summary And the thing we add into that for us as a church is the Great Commission. We don't just increase by uh, family. We increase by evangelizing. Now, I want to land this thing uh, because I always have some application points. So I want to give you three points. And the first is this. If we read this and we apply it to us, the first thing I'm going to say is we need to be united on God's Word. We need to be united on God's word in the same way that the people were hearing other truths. The peop- some, some leaders were standing up, even in the name of God, and they're saying, this is true. You need to embrace this. We live in a culture that's full of that. Not only from within the church, but even outside the church on so many issues. And one of the way, way, where places I'm going to take you is it's dividing our churches. It's dividing our churches There's two major things dividing the evangelical church today. One of them is the woke issues and the different places people land on some of them. And there's a way in which, like like, uh, Jeremiah said, look, some people are going to stand up and say this, but thus saith the Lord. You got to land firmly on whatever the issues are, on whatever God's word is teaching on the issues that divide us. I mean, I just kind of jotted down in my mind, then put on paper as an example, in the beginning, right? We go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created. God is the giver and taker of life. So any issues about life, what does the word say about that? Whether it's euthanasia, whether it's abortion, we, need, we better go and say, what does God's word say about that? What in the beginning, God made man. And then he made woman. He made gender. He made it. What does God's word say about that? Then he brought the woman together and the man together and married. He made marriage. What does God's word say about marriage? We should go there and take his word and what it says on those issues. And then guess what? They had kids and they had a family. What does he say about family? The affirming of family all through scripture. And we live in an age where families are shrinking. 
I don't want to get into demographics, but the average number of kids is getting lower and lower. But when I look at God's word, they're a blessing. And he says in God's word, this is what is true about family, true about man and woman, true about sexuality, true about roles of the man and roles of the woman and how they interact. Role uh, in the beginning, life. What does that mean then for the issues regarding that? So all of these things. Number one, we need to be united on what God's Word says on these issues. Now, I would say secondly, just like Jeremiah, we need to unite around a mission, a mission to increase. And I already mentioned a little bit about how churches are not growing. Many churches are not growing, or they're growing at the expense of other churches. So I have found myself, God has led me into this role as the president of the, of the Ministers Association on Guam. And I've gone to the elders of our church, and we're talking about a vision that incorporates how our church will blend into this to help all the other pastors and churches who are willing on the island. That's part of why we brought out this speaker, to encourage the pastors and to help train anyone who's willing to come and listen. Because there are churches in Guam who for 10 years have been 25 people. And the question I want to say is, what is your vision? Because there should be increase. Churches should be growing. And we shouldn't be growing solely at the expense of other churches that die. And we collect their people. That's not gospel growth on the large scale, right? So we are looking at this. Now, how do we engage the culture? Well, out of this um, partnership with the Guam Ministers Association, as we're looking at ways we can uh, bring churches together collectively to support certain kinds of ministry, like Safe Haven, like Harvest House, National Day of Prayer, how we can build a, a, an ecosystem of faith if I could use that term, where we recognize that for the gospel to really grow in any one region, it's never one church, that we need God to have a movement so that churches work together and we bring about gospel growth. Churches cannot be tribal. Now, we need to unite around a mission like that, and we need to unite around a vision for the welfare of Guam. Now, this kind of takes me into, I want to say something to all of you, because if we really care about the welfare of Guam, then you need to be involved in things outside of the church as well. Building relationships with people, what kind of movements are out there, but also one of the, one of the gifts that God has given you is in the area of politics. Right now in Russia, there are people who disagree with Putin and they get thrown in jail. Some people get killed. Countries like Iran, they have no means outside of revolution to make changes, to bring about welfare. You have been given something. You can change leaders. And I say this because the last time we had an election, I didn't even vote. I was so busy. I I didn't have it high on my list. Next thing I know, I missed the registration. I couldn't vote. And we certainly should not lament the direction of municipalities if we don't participate in the process that God has given us. And yet, I will say this to you. I, I cannot stand in a pulpit and tell you who you should vote for. I don't feel that freedom. Because God's Word says, if you don't do it out of faith, then it's sin. And you can't push people into, they need to have the freedom to vote. And I've learned, especially as the church has become more and more divided, that there are people who, I agree with all of these things on this side, but I just can't handle that politician. I, it's against my conscience to vote for that politician. And we find ourselves in this conundrum. But I, I want to say you need to participate. You need to do your homework. 
You need to know what the politicians stand for, and you need to vote. And I'm saying that because this is around the corner. We're weeks away from one here in Guam. If you've been sent here to Guam, what role can you play in this? Right? So go back to what I said. In the beginning this, in the beginning this, in the beginning this. What does God teach on all of these issues that are very important for building the welfare of a community in a singular place? And then take that in with you um, when you go in to vote. Because... I'll just tell you, and this comes out of research I've been reading, the two things dividing the church has been the issues of, of wokeness and, and Donald Trump. That has been two of the, the issues that have divided a lot of Christians. And there are Christians who are like, I'm a Republican, and I cannot stand that that Christian didn't vote that way. And it divides them. And yet, the thing that I always have come back and landed on is to say, a Republican Christian has more in common with a Democrat Christian than a Republican who is secular and atheistic. Do, do you realize that? And this circles me back to my story in the beginning, which was, how can I be so impressed with a disenfranchised Catholic who partners with a used-to-be Seventh-day Adventist, not really practicing, and they have such love for one another and unity, even though they disagree on one of the most controversial issues in our culture. And the answer is because they, they went to war together to build a hospital. They did something to benefit the well-being of the island. That somehow was greater to them than a difference. And I want to say to you, building a temporary, albeit good for the island hospital, does not compare to the unity we have in Christ that's eternal. And we should be together. And you, it, it's going to challenge you sometimes to be accepting of somebody who might be of a different political nature, but they're part of the church. But you have to. And you've got to let God grow us through the issues as we go to his word. Okay, there's a difference. What does God's word teach about that? And somehow, in a peaceful, unifying way, we can talk about those issues. Because if we can't be united, then what, what, why would people be drawn to the church? We are, we are a very divided entity in the world. And we need to be unified in the world in order to make an impact. And this reminds me then of my favorite soccer team, which is Liverpool Soccer. If you know anything about soccer, I mean, Liverpool's a city. They have a team. They wear red. That is my team. Love them. Every time there's a game, they have been so good, and recently they're not doing great. There's heartbreak. Do you know, I went to a game there. I actually got to go all the way to England, and I went to Liverpool. I watched a game, and it's different there. There, everyone in the stadium is a, is a Liverpool fan. It's not like the States where you could have a mix of fans. Everyone, except for one small corner of the stadium, they let the opponents have their fans in a small section. Every stadium's like that. Every stadium over there. And guess what? The game I went to was, was a game between them and the, the crosstown rival, kind of like Yankees and Mets or Giants and Jets, where they're two teams in the same city. And everybody loves this team or that team. This team is the Reds. Guess what the other team is? The Blues. The Reds and the Blues. And I, what I remember about this is we're in the stadium, and it's like there's so much love for our team, and yeah, yeah. And then every now and then they stand up, and all this anger would be forced over at this small section. I mean, I even videoed it. We're like, there's the game. You see this guy stand up in front of the video. And he's like, you, son of a rabbit and mother, you. I mean, like no love for them. They hate each other, right? And then somehow they leave the stadium, and they live together in a city. And they do things together to for the welfare of the city. It's weird. Yet, again, how can we not be as Christians? If you go, I'm this way, God calls me to care about the municipality of the area I'm in to make it welfare, I better go vote, and this Christian's here. Well, I have always said this, neither or there's no political party that 100% reflects Christianity. 
There isn't. There's always something in there. You, that means you can't be 100% one party. You've got to be part of it. And I like what one pastor said. You've got to be Republican light or Democrat light. And you've got to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you go out in the world and you're trying to reach it, you need to be thinking about, you know, that game that I watched. There's the red team, the red. There's the blue. But there's another color on the field. And it's the referee. And the referee gets his instructions from a book that doesn't come from the red side or the blue side. He gets his in, in, instructions from headquarters that writes the rules of the game and sends them to him. And then they read it and they go out into that game. And they say, hey, you guys shouldn't do it that way. We're going to correct that. Oh, you shouldn't do it that way. Hey, you got to get along. There's none of that. No taunting. You know, that's, that is the role that we are to have. You're to go into the world Get your instructions from a book that doesn't come from this world and love the red and love the blue. And you build a community of people who draw others in because Jesus said they will know you're my followers by your love for one another. And you cannot let politics divide. And yet you have to be involved because it's right here. Care about the city. And if the trash is piling up and the schools are broken down and there's no good hospitals, you better get involved to make it a better place to live. Thank you, Father, for the challenge of Jeremiah as we can see how it impacts us as a church and a people where we're supposed to live. Lord, I care so much about you and I care so much about the mission that you've given my family to live here, to love the people of this island, to build a community that that would exemplify the very things being taught, that we would unify around your word, first and foremost, no matter the issues, we would be led by your word. Secondly, Lord, that we would understand that we're part of a mission that has increase, not decrease, not dying, not plateau, but growing, not stealing, reshuffling grain that's already been harvested, but going into that field and seeing an increase where we harvest unharvested grain. Raise up people who care about this. Not like the Jews who only 50,000 returned to their homeland because they fell in love with the place that they lived. And Lord, the vision to see churches unite, to work together, to minister to the island, to build things. And Lord, just to give you glory in it all. We lift this up in your name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll finish as we sing together as a body of believers. Praise arise.